Today's reading is from the book of Exodus, chap, uh, chapter 3, verse 7 and 10, and chapters 4, verses 1 through 17. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Then Moses answered, But, um, but behold, I, they will not believe me or, or listen to my voice, for, 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 for they will say, The Lord did not appear, appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A, a staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, Behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even those two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and his mouth and will teach you, what, you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. The word of the Lord. Almighty Father, all of us find it difficult to trust you. And we thank you that your grace overcomes our weakness and our difficulty. And so we ask you right now to uh, give us the capacity to think clearly, to consider deeply what it is that you have to say to us. Give us the capacity to discern and understand and receive, but will you also work within our hearts that we may trust you uh, and know deep within us that we can, that we should, 
that you are faithful, you are good, and that you're there. Uh, and overcome all the difficulties that we have in, in, in coming to that place. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And uh, it's always helpful if you turn back to pages uh, 7 and 8. Um, we're continuing our series in the book of Exodus. And today um, we get to listen in on, on Moses and God having a fight. Um, which is great. It's not, it's not the last time. It's the first time, but it, 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 happens, it happens a bunch of times. Um, and, um, now, and, and obviously it's not a li literal fight. It's an argument. Uh, God says, Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and, you know, liberate them and stuff. And, and Moses says, uh, God, I love your vision. Great vision. Um, but th no thank you. Um, I'm not your guy. And, um, and here's the gift. It's a wonderful gift, this conversation, this argument, this fight. And here's why. As we look into this story, it gives us an insight into some of the underlying causes of our unbelief and how God's grace overcomes our unbelief. Um, let me, let, let's think just a little bit about believing something. And in particular... What it means to believe in God. When I say, when I, if I were to ask you a question, do you believe in God? Uh, there's at least two things that I might mean and two ways that you might respond. On the one hand, I might mean, uh, do you theoretically believe that somewhere out there, there's something or someone that somebody might call God? Do you believe in the existence of something that might be called God as you define it. And, and if I was to ask that question, an atheist would say no. And an agnostic would say, I'm not sure. Uh, a theist would say yes. That's probably what comes to our mind when we think of the question. But it's not the only thing that we might mean. When Christians and the Bible and Christian tradition uses the word belief and faith, we mean something that includes that, but that is bigger than that. So we just, a few minutes ago, said the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, Son, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in that context, we are not just saying we believe theoretically in the existence of God. Did you know that you've meant more than that? Um, um, what we're saying is, uh, I trust God. And I trust a particular God, not just the idea of God in general, but a particular God. And I'm entrusting myself to the God of the Bible whom I trust is uh, worthy of comprehensive authority in my life. It's a big view of belief, faith, trust. Now, why am I saying all this? I'm saying this because... These are, these are the questions that are underneath the argument between God and Moses in this reading. So G Moses knows that God exists. That is not his question. The question for Moses is, do I trust him? Can I really believe him? Can I really trust him? And that's the question before Moses... A little bit later in the book of Exodus, that's the question before Israel. That's the question for us today. Not only do we believe that God exists, but do we trust him enough to give ourselves to him comprehensively and surrender ourselves totally to him? And so if you're a Christian today, that's, 
That's the question that's before you. Not just do you believe in God generally, but do you trust him particularly? And if you're not yet a Christian, that's the question that you need to wrestle with. Not just is there a God, but if there is one, can he be trusted? And here's what I want to show you. We want to see that Moses' default setting is distrust. He tries to hide it. He's good at hiding it. But God sees through it. And the antidote to Moses' distrust is God's grace. God's grace defeats our unbelief. Let me show you what I mean. Okay, get into the story here. Uh, we are on page 7. And remember the story so far. Um, Moses was raised in Pharaoh's household in Egypt, um, but he was an Israelite. And at some point along his uh, story, he, uh, his loyalty to Israel was reignited. Um, he saw that uh, Israel was enslaved in Egypt and that the regime of Egypt was unjust. He tried to uh, liberate them, but um, nobody followed him. It's never, a good, uh, it's never a good sign of one's leadership when no one is following you. And um, so he tried, he failed, and he had to run off into exile. So he spent 40 years in exile as a shepherd... And then we have the story of the burning bush. Now, our reading right now is on the tail end of that same scene. Um, Moses engages God at the burning bush. God uh, sends Moses back to Egypt in order to liberate Israel. And that's where we pick up the story at verse 1. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord didn't appear to you. Now, I think we should give Moses the benefit of the doubt, right? Um, because j just remember the context. So he's supposed to go back to Egypt, which he's already been kicked out of. He's meant to find the elders of Israel and say something like, Hi, guys. It's been a little while, hasn't it? Um, I actually knew all your dads. Um, I know that the last time we tried this, it didn't work out so well. But hey, listen, I met God the other day. How's that? Um, no, I didn't see God. Um, I saw a bush that was on fire in the desert, but I heard a voice. And, um, and so here's the plan. We're supposed to uh, defy the greatest superpower of our day and head out of town into the desert, and then eventually we'll get to a new land. No, I haven't been there either. But, um, you know, let's just go for it. Hey, eh? who's, who's with me, you know? Now, when you think of it that way, it, you know, you can ask the question, does that sound like a good plan? And of course, yes, right, the answer is it's a terrible plan. Why is it a terrible plan? Probably a few different reasons, but at least it's a bad plan because it doesn't sound realistic. It does not adequately take into account the facts on the ground. The facts on the ground are Egypt is powerful, Israel is weak, and having visions of God in the desert is weird. One of the most reasons, one of the most common reasons we do not trust God is that we prefer to trust our own perception of reality. What does that mean? Am I right? We have a high confidence that we have an accurate view of the world we live in and how it works. 
And because we have a high view of our confidence, we have a high confidence in our perspective on how the world works, we kind of know, we think we know uh, the real world and how it really works and those sorts of things, so that when, we, uh, when following God seems to contradict our understanding of how the world works, we hit the brakes and we go, wait a second, we got to really slow down here. And we sort of say to God, God, in principle, um, I love your vision and I'm willing to follow you. However, I just have one condition. And the one condition that I have is please do not ask me to do anything that I find unreasonable, unrealistic, or risky. Or put differently... We're very happy to have God as our supporter and our encourager and our helper so long as we're pursuing our own agenda. But it is very, very difficult for us to trust him deeply enough for God to truly become our leader and our Lord and our captain who's leading us into places we're not sure we want to go. Okay, think about whether or not that fits and go back to the reading because the problem really isn't Moses' realism. Um, just before this, we didn't read it, but just before this, God tells explicitly uh, Moses that despite Moses' expectations, the elders of Israel are going to listen. God clearly knows that the elders of Israel have already been prepared in some way to listen or he was arranging things in such a way that they would listen. And Moses knows that. So the issue here is not so much Moses' realism. The real issue is that Moses simply doesn't trust God. And in particular, Moses doesn't trust God's word. God has said they're going to listen. And Moses says, no, they're not going to listen. Moses is looking for an excuse to hide his deep distrust of the Lord. Okay. Keep that in mind and skip over to verse 10. This is Moses' second reason why he doesn't want to go. Uh, verse 10. Uh, but Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Which is wonderful. It, it's sweet little humble Moses um, here. You know, um, it, do, do you notice here, Moses is presenting as uh, sweet and humble and, and lovely. Um, but there's a barb. There's a barb in what he says to God. Did you see it? Look back at it. He says, oh, my Lord, says Moses, um, I just don't have what it takes. I, I'm, I know my limits, and I'm, I'm not really good at talking. And honestly, I must point out, Lord, that you haven't fixed my speech problem in the last 15 minutes of our conversation since we started getting to know each other. Now, do you see what's going on there? On the one hand, Moses is insecure about his weakness, right? He, we're not sure what it is. He may stutter. He may be afraid of speaking to a large group of people. Uh, he may, it may be that he doesn't pick the right word, whatever it is. He's insecure about his weakness, which all of us can identify with, right? That's fair. But on the other hand, do you see here he subtly blames God for his weakness? He says, and it hasn't changed since talking to you. And he sees his weakness, this is very important, he sees his weakness as a sign that God is not good and that God cannot be trusted, at least not with really risky things. You made me like this, God, and you haven't changed me 
This is your problem. How can I trust you? He presents as humble. But it's a false humility. It's a camouflage. And it's hiding a deep-seated insecurity, self-absorption, and arrogance. And I say it's arrogance because he knows better than God in this moment. And he looks at God and in so many words he says, God, you owe it to me. You owe it to me to take this stutter away or this weakness. Can you identify with that? And then look at verse 13, because this is the real source of his unbelief. Verse 13, he says, but, oh my Lord, just please send somebody else. So the Lord has been answering all of his objections. We'll get to that in a second. But finally, here's the real issue. Moses doesn't trust God because Moses doesn't, doesn't want to trust God. It's a desire thing. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to go on the mission. He doesn't want to surrender fully to the Lord. He wants to keep control of his life, and he simply does not want to obey. And now we're down to the real issue for him. And this is what we need all of us struggle with. Because it is possible, and in fact it happens all the time, to cognitively believe that God is out there somewhere, and yet nevertheless still not want to entrust him with our life in a comprehensive way. In fact, just because you believe it, that uh, theoretically that there is a God out there, that in no way means that you will want to surrender your life to him well and deeply and comprehensively. Very often, we want to call all the shots even when we believe that there is a God out there. And so what happens is, in that situation, we will be very religious and we will do outwardly all the religious duties that we think show that we're surrendered to the Lord so long as it doesn't demand too much. And we will trust God and we will follow him right up until the point where it becomes risky. And we will trust God and we will follow him so long as we feel in plausible control and strong in ourselves, but no further. And it's a little bit like we think we'll do our bit and God, you better do yours. And what we tell ourselves is, well, we're just being reasonable. We're just being realistic. Maybe even we're being wise. We're not being like those weird extremists. We're, you know, we're, we live in the real world, don't we? But the reality is, um, uh, when we do that, we're, we're called religious unbelievers. And that's why God gets angry in verse 14. Do you see that? See God gets angry? It's not the last time God's going to get angry in this book. Um, almost, you know, just think about this. I, I know whenever God gets angry, it's extraordinarily difficult for us. and brings up all kinds of questions. And we'll deal with those as we go through Exodus. But just consider this. Most of us would agree that if you're going to be religious, please don't be a hypocrite. Most of us would agree that religious hypocrisy is just one of the worst things, right? God agrees. And if you think about that for about five seconds, it should frighten you to your core. Because hypocrisy is the root of all kinds of evil. And God is hostile towards it. And he's hostile towards it in us. Even when we 
camouflage it with our best efforts. So, on that note, though, um, let's go back to the reading again, because despite Moses' willful distrust and his camouflaging it and trying to get, weasel his way out, this reading, Emmanuel, this reading is quivering with grace, and it's grace that defeats the unbelief. Let me show you three things about God's grace. God's grace in this passage is power and presence and patience. First, God's grace is power. Um, the Lord gives Moses, you notice this, right, three signs. Um, we only have re, uh, time to talk about one sign. And we're going to talk about the staff into a snake sign. Um, so, look back at the beginning of the passage. Um, Moses is scared of Egypt and frightened of uh, Israel's response. And so God says, uh, what you got in your hand, Moses? And Moses is like, well, it's, it's my shepherd's staff. And God says, throw it on the ground. He throws it on the ground. It becomes a snake, probably a cobra. They're scary. So Moses jumps back. Now, pause. The snake, or the cobra, is a symbol, immediately recognizable, of Egypt's power. So, um, you, you know, the bald eagle for America, um, that's what a cobra was for Egypt. Uh, 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 the pharaoh's scepter had a cobra on it. Um, Pharaoh's crown had a cobra on it, all that stuff. So this is not just a kind of cheap trick. It's not like a, hey, check it out, watch what I can do. There's a, look at snake. Um, no, this is meaningful. It's a parable about power. The Lord says, watch my power, Moses. Look at that stick. It turns into a snake. It then turns back into a staff. And in the same way, God is showing Moses how he raised up Egypt in all its power, and how we can throw down Egypt in all its power like that. Now, what this means for Moses is that it means that he is, his problem is not that he's too realistic. The problem is that he is not realistic enough. And this sign, the word sign, is very important. The sign of the staff is a window. It opens Mo up for Moses, a new reality. Not the reality that Moses can see by himself, but the deeper reality from the context and the vantage point of God's power and grace. Now that's what signs always do all the way through the Bible, and the Bible is full of them. The signs of God open up a new reality to us. And when you see God's new reality through the sign... And especially when you deeply internalize his great power, you'll begin to see why it is that it makes rational sense to trust him more than you trust your unaided perceptions and analysis of your world. Grace is power. And it opens up a new perspective on reality. But then secondly, God's grace is also presence. Look at verse 11. So Moses is whining about his public speaking. And then verse 11, the Lord says this. Who made the man's mouth, Moses? And who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth, and I shall teach you what you shall speak. Now it's very important to notice what the Lord does not say. The Lord does not say, let me give you a back rub. Moses, I believe in you. I believe in you, Moses. You can do it. 
You can do it. And you know what? I'm going to snap my fingers and all your weakness is going to go away. That's not what he does. That's what Moses wants, but that's not what he does. Instead, the Lord shows his power by being present precisely in and with Moses' weakness. This is crucial. The Lord leverages Moses' weakness. It is not an obstacle to God. It is an instrument of God. The Lord leverages Moses' weakness in order to display the Lord's power and presence. And you can see a hint of this. Go back to the snake. You can see a hint of this in the staff snake sign. Look at verse 4. The Lord tells Moses to catch the snake by the tail. Did you catch that? Isn't that funny? Um, you ever catch a snake? Don't catch it by the tail. Um, if you want to kill Thanos, you got to aim for the head, right? And if you want to kill a snake, you got to do the same thing. But the Lord requires Moses to catch the snake in the most vulnerable way possible. Catch it by the tail precisely at the place where it, the snake is designed to reach around and grab you. Why? The Lord requires Moses to be vulnerable and weak. And the reason is that is precisely where Moses will be most in need of trusting entirely and surrendering entirely to the Lord and his grace and his power and his presence. We find out later in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians, that God's power is made perfect in weakness. And it has been that way from the very beginning. God's grace here is defeating Moses' unbelief by teaching him to trust and by teaching him to trust in the midst of his experience of vulnerability when it's most hard to trust. Now, let's do some application. Emmanuel, you know what this means? It means that your weakness is not a curse. When you experience weakness, fill in the blank. I don't need to fill in the blank, do I? You can do that. We can all taste our weakness. When you feel your weakness, it does not mean that God has left you. And some of us have believed that. And when you feel weak, it does not mean that God has failed you. And some of us have believed that. Your weakness and my weakness, when surrendered to the Lord becomes the particular setting for God to show forth his power and his grace and his glory in your life. It is the particular way, it's part of the design of the story of your life to be the setting, the stage upon which the drama of God's mercy is going to play out and it's going to play out in your weakness, not just in your strength. So trust him, and especially with your weakness. And I can imagine somebody saying, oh, Jim, that's rhetoric. That's empty. You don't know what I, you don't know my weakness. To which I respond, of course you're right. But God does. Do you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Uh, hours before his uh, uh, crucifixion? Minutes before his arrest. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's just at the same moment that Moses is. He's facing down a very big mission. Moses' mission was to rescue Israel from Egypt. But Jesus' mission was 
to rescue all of humanity from evil and death and sin and Satan. It's pretty big. And Moses felt weak because he stuttered. And Jesus felt weak because he was the immortal God who had embraced mortality and was facing his own death. And Moses told God, hey, send somebody else. And Jesus said, is there any way that this cup can pass? Is there another one? Is there another way? Is... Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You can trust God with your weakness because God knows about your weakness because God entered into your weakness. And that's on the cross where God's power and presence and glory shone forth most clearly. And so it will be in you. So God's grace is power and God's grace is presence. And finally, God's grace is patience. Look at verse 15. Uh, the Lord gives Moses Aaron to help him. Now, let's be careful here. Uh, Aaron was not God's first choice. And later on, we find out why. Um, Mo Aaron was really good at talking. He was pretty bad at leading. And thousands of people suffer because of his later unfaithfulness. And one of the things that that means is that Moses' distrust of the Lord here has huge consequences later on. When we refuse to trust God, it will end up hurting people. Internalize that warning. However, despite all of that, God's grace is patient with us, and God's grace is patient with Moses, and his grace wins, and he gets Moses to high confidence in him. And right now, the Lord is patient with you. And do you know how you know that the Lord is patient with you? Um, the Lord shows you his patience right now by patiently turning your heart from wanting to not trust him, to desiring to surrender your heart to him. You know, when Jesus rose from the dead, um, he sent his Holy Spirit. And one of the Spirit's jobs is to work within our hearts, to, to go into our hearts that are like Moses. Our hearts are uh, hard and resistant and slow to trust. And the Holy Spirit goes in and softens us. And then he imparts into us like a transfusion the willingness of Jesus Christ. So that when the Holy Spirit is working in you, we find ourselves saying something like, Father, I'm frightened to trust you right now. And I'm, and I'm very in touch with my weakness. And I have asked you to take my weakness away, but you haven't yet. And yet you ask me to trust you. And I want to say, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Will you help me say that? I'm not sure I can. Help me trust you. Give me the trust you desire to see in me. I trust you. That's called being filled with the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit doing that in you? Just a little? 
ask for more. It's the beginning of faith. So, are you in an argument with God right now? If you're not, give it time. If you're in an argument with God, in one sense, that's normal. Everybody has to do it. On the other hand, do not stay there too long. Open your eyes to the signs of God's grace. And Emmanuel, the signs of God's grace are everywhere. Open your eyes to the signs of God's power and presence and patience. Where are the signs? They're everywhere. The Bible is just quivering with the signs of God's mercy. Moses didn't have that, but you do. The Bible is filled with the signs of God's mercy. Saturate yourself with them. The sacraments are signs of God's mercy. They will open you up. They will open a window to realities that you cannot see on your own. Open your eyes to the signs of God's mercy. Open your eyes to the signs of God's mercy that are seated around you right now. You are surrounded by people in whom God's spirit is walking with them in the midst of their weakness and turning their weakness to become the stage of God's grace and glory. Look at the signs of God's mercy around you. And then above all, look at Jesus Christ because he's the perfect sign. He's reality. He is power. He is presence. He is patience with you personified. He went to the cross for you. Look upon the signs of God's mercy and you will see a God that you can trust. Amen? Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.